Hi, I'm Eric Christensen with the Family of Virtues podcast. Thank you for joining me on the Family of Virtues podcast. I would like to take this opportunity to thank our listeners from all over the world who are tuning into these podcasts week in, week out from over 20 different countries now. Your support and encouragement is invaluable to us. You can leave us a review on Apple Podcasts and Podchaser. For more information, please head to familyofvirtues.com slash rate. That's familyofvirtues.com slash rate. Please leave us a review. Let us know how we're going. Please remember to subscribe to Family of Virtues on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Subscribing allows you to get notified whenever new episodes launch, so it is really helpful. And lastly, follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Family of Virtues. Thank you, everyone, for joining us today on the Family of Virtues podcast. I honor all of us for our commitment to learn more about ourselves and how we can create positive and loving environments for our children. We have with us today Eric, Eric Christensen, a multi-award winning documentarian whose four films focus on the impact of trauma on individuals, families, communities. A trauma survivor himself having lost his home in the Santa Barbara Painted Cave fire disaster, he understands trauma, the resilience of the human spirit, and how important hope is to heal. His new film, Unmasking Hope, which covers extraordinary stories of survival most of us have heard only on the news, such as living through mass shootings, terror attacks, combat, and sexual assaults. In order to heal, they must confront what's happened to them and begin their journey from seclusion to inclusion. And as we follow their moving stories, we're all inspired to find hope again and be who we were born to be. Eric's other work include documentary films such as Faces in the Fire, Homecoming, A Vietnam Vet's Journey, and Searching for Home, Coming Back from War. And today, our topic on Family of Virtues is hope, because the world lives on hope. And I couldn't be more happier that Eric has agreed to sit with us today to discuss not only his experiences, but how we as families in this pandemic can look at hope as an answer to whatever we may be facing. Eric, what an honor it is for us to welcome you today. Well, thank you, Richard. This is awesome. And it's uh, great to connect across the world because, you know, we're, we're all connected anyways. And hope is something that definitely connects us. Absolutely. Eric, before I actually get on to your stories, I want to read the card on hope. And once I do that, we can just reflect on how that affects us or how that resonates with us. Um, as to where we are in life today. So, hope. Hope is looking to the future with trust and faith. It is optimism in the face of adversity. Without hope, we lose our will to live fully. Hope gives us the courage to keep moving forward. It can be elusive when we have suffered often, Yet it is the light that can redeem our dreams. With hope, we know we are not alone. There is always help when we are willing to ask. There are gifts to be gleaned from all that happens. With hope, we find the confidence to try and try again. Eric, over to you. You know, Richard, it, that, that's absolutely beautiful. And, you know, hope is fragile. 
you know, and we live mm-hmm. in a time right now where we're kind of being tested, you know, we're, we're being pushed to with so many things happening in the COVID and this lockdown and so many new horizons, it really puts us onto the edge where that hope becomes a little bit more fragile. It's not like it was a year ago. And you know what I, what I see in this and what I love is that it recognizes that hope is extremely fragile and it is a gift, you know, that we must, we have to nurture like a plant or a flower and, and, and keep that close to us. And then we can also give it away, you know, and that's the beautiful part because the people that truly have hope deep down in their soul, they can give that away, you know? And the other thing I really love about that is where it says, try and try again, you know, hope's not a one-shot deal and hope's not just given to you and you keep it. It's something that you have to work for basically and something that you have to ask for in many, many cases. And it's something that we might lose occasionally, but that's okay because we can get it back. And as a good friend of mine always says, you know, when you fail at something and, and you start again and you, and, and you obtain that again, make those times in between the failures less and less. It's like if you lose hope and you go for a week or so kind of despondent, you know, next time, let's try to get that back in a day or so. Let's not go so long without these things, you know, because it, it gives us a confidence to try again and try again. And I love that. Thank you so much for, for your reflections. I think, you know, a very wise man once told me that the world lives on hope. And I can understand that because there are sometimes situations where we feel that we need a lot of these virtues to be able to carry on. We need courage, we need perseverance, we need to be determined, resilient. But hope is something that is so, you, you just can't see it. You, it's, it's untangible. And sometimes when all things are not apparent in front of you, it is that one last thing that you need to hang on to, which is hope, which is just that trust, that faith, that whatever may happen will be for the good. And it, it's, it comes to a bit of acceptance as well, doesn't it, Eric? Some, some kind of surrender. You know, for me, it, it's all about the acceptance. And that's, yeah. you know, that's a tough order. And, you know, again, you know, we, we, I think we both like to quote our mentors and, and, and the wiser people among us. And, you know, there, mm. there is victory in surrender, which is one of the great paradoxes, mm. you know, because when, mm. we, when, we, when we really surrender our will... And then we have to lean back into faith. You know, that's where I believe hope is born. And again, as, as you said, the hope is so fragile, but it, it, it's born out of, out of surrender, out of, out of getting our will out of the way and having faith that it will work out the way it's supposed to work out in some situations. Do you think to a certain extent for human beings, we come to a certain juncture where we feel like as if it's not in our control anymore. And that's really when we lean on hope, you know, and yes. And, and unfortunately, you know, I was once told pain is the touchstone of growth and mm. it's usually a certain amount of pain that takes us to a place where we do finally fall back 
on on our faith and into surrender and and then hopefully manifest some sort of hope. And I see this time and time again with people in recovery and the people that I work with in trauma. Mm. So take us back, Eric. You've got a very uh, interesting story to tell all the way back to June of 1990 when your story started. So take us back to that. Well, it starts... A little, it starts even before that. You know, I, I was working in the industry. I was making films and being an editor and cinematographer for quite a while. Mm. And I also had an extremely bad habit with drugs and alcohol. Mm. But that worked right into what I was doing. You know, I was mm. highly enabled in that. But, you know, in June 27th, 1990, the Painted Cave fire disaster in Santa Barbara came down through the mountains, fueled by the sundowner winds that mm. blow out to sea there over 90 miles per hour. And it was a virtual firestorm, and uh, it burned down my house and over 400 other homes in Santa mm. Barbara in just one night. Wow. And uh, that was the beginning of my turning point. My work changed and my life changed. It took me seven months to really see that it was... God's calling card. You know, I was, I was strained and my, my ability to have hope at that point, you know, I, I had lost hope. Yeah. And it was when seven months later that I ventured into a spiritual based program with several other individuals like me and I identified with them and knew I wasn't alone anymore and found out a path to healing and started working that path. Mm. That's when, that's when I got, you know, I was able to receive the gift of hope once more because I had a way out and I had seen other individuals that have been successful in working that. And that gave me hope. And, and it says somewhere that this was a disaster. That's obviously very hard. Uh, that was hard for you to recover from as it would have been for anybody but it was your greatest gift. So can you explain that to our listeners? How is it that a disaster, a disaster that was hard to recover from became your greatest gift? Well, there, there's kind of two levels. There's the one that it gave me my calling. Mm. And the other one is, and it took a little bit distance out from that to realize that my slate, I had a huge opportunity. My slate had been wiped clean. Hmm. I was given a brand new opportunity midway in my life around, I believe I was around 25 or so, to start my life again. Yeah. And at that point, you know, I was in the industry. I was doing lots of music videos and other things. Mm -hmm. But being a survivor of the disaster and being around other survivors and going to some of the American Red Cross help stations and things like that, and I would meet other survivors and we would speak and we had this quick language and this understanding because they had been through it also. Yeah. But to the outside world, it was very difficult to try to communicate what our journey was like. And yeah. that's when the idea for my first personal documentary, I guess you would call it, independent documentary, mm. was born. Mm. And I started working on a film called Faces in the Fire. Naively, right. I just said, let's do this documentary about the survival and the recovery after a disaster. Yeah. And a year after that fire, we premiered the film to the population of Santa Barbara with the American Red Cross and counselors. And we had the whole thing. Mm. 
And it was amazing to see the, not only the participants that were in the film and see the amount of healing they had being able to validate their experience by seeing themselves in the film, but it, it fanned out into the community. It was a, it was a touchstone of healing for the whole community. And at that point I became hooked. That was, that's, I knew that was my calling that all these gifts that I had when, as far as filmmaking and my talents, that's what I was meant to do is to use my experience going through a disaster, going through the trauma and my personal recovery. Also, Hmm. I was given the tools to create these type of films and now I'm on my fourth film Yeah, and it's, it's been a big gift and uh, not only that way, but it saved my life. That fire saved my life. Without that fire, I never would have gotten sober and my eyes never would have opened up. Yeah. Extraordinary. It's just uh, such, such a touching story and, 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 and one of such uh, you know, perseverance as well. I feel like as if when you make these films, this medium that you've chosen and you bring the whole community together, there is kind of a validation of, of the trauma and the pain that they've gone through when they actually see that, that somebody understands and somebody recognizes us, you know, what, whatever we've gone through. And of course, not just the fire, because that was a personal one for you, but all the other films as well, in which you, you, you are documenting, you know, post-trauma. So that's, that's definitely some, some beautiful work. And you've said somewhere that inside all of us, and I want to bring it to our families now with parents and children, it says inside all of us, we all heal the same way. Would you mind elaborating on that a little bit? Because we're all facing very different challenges. So how is it that we heal the same way? My answer to that is very spiritually based. I believe mm. that we were built in such a way by our creator mm-hmm. that we heal from trauma. And, and time and time again, I see this, and I even see it reflected back in some of the top clinicians and some of the top studies Right. That we're created in a way that if we fall down and get a scratch or a scab yeah. or a scratch, it's going to scab over, then it's going to heal. And it's a natural right. progression, Absolutely. which is common to all of us. All mm. I mean, all of us humans and even animals. But But when it comes to trauma and it comes to grief, I thoroughly believe at the core, and it's been proven to me time and time again, Hmm. that our creator has endowed us with the ability to heal from these traumas. Hmm. And it's the same progression from person to person. It takes a different modality. It Hmm. looks different, but it's the same progression. And for example, when I was doing my film, Searching for Home, Coming Back from War, I was, I was working with a Korean war veteran, mm-hmm. Purple Heart Marine, out of the middle of America, Kansas. And he was salt of the earth, a good old boy. And he was well into his 70s. Mm. On the other side of the United States, I was working with Sandra Lee, a female veteran from Iraq in her late 20s that suffered uh, PTSD at the hands of a roadside bomb and also military sexual trauma. And so what did those two really have in common? And this happens time and time again in my work. 
I found out their rhythms and their healing was very, very similar. They're telling each other's story. Right. So that's how my films are. They're an aggregate. I have, I have not just one survivor, but in Unmasking Hope, I have nine different survivors and they Mm. all tell the same story. They tell different parts of it, but it's basically the same story through their own experience. So that's my point with that we all heal in in such a similar way, it becomes one story. And that's really the message of my films. And you speak about uh, these masks in in your movie, Unmasking Hope. And it's not just the masks, but the fact that some masks actually serve us well. So how, how does that happen? How does actually having a mask serve us well? Well, I think on some level, we've all been through this. Something happens to us or something uncomfortable happens to us. And we, we kind of hide our true self and that's yeah. the mask. And that mask can be work, you know, workaholism. That mask can be, you know, just a unusually chipper demeanor. Right. That mask can be, takes so many different shapes and, and, and personalities, but so Quite often, especially with a trauma survivor, that mask, for the time being, serves the individual. And for example, it's the mom that has been going through like a radical cancer operation, and it's very traumatic, and she's trying to get back on her feet, and there's a lot of trauma and and grief, or she has lost her husband, whatever that may be. But she has her youngster that she has to get ready to school and get her them off and take care of them. That woman can put on that mask of being able to be able to deal with things for that in that period and that way and that role and use that mask in a very positive way. We put that mask on. It's like it's like some people say, put on your big boy pants. Yeah, And they then they, they do what they need to do. And time and time mm. again, I see that with trauma survivors. And I think a lot of the audience can connect with that. But so mm. many times we have to put on that certain mask, go forwards, move so we can help our family and help others. Mm. It, it's The problem with that, though, is when that mask steps over the boundaries of its usefulness. Right. And we start hiding behind it. And it becomes... Mm a secondary personality to who we are. Mm -hmm. That's when it's like the drugs, alcoholism, physical violence, workaholism, all those masks that were, it's hiding something Mm. and it's, it's no longer a functional mask. And then hence the name unmasking hope Mm. is we talk about those masks in the film and we talk about how we lose those masks. Once we identify and start to find the root of our problems and then we find hope and especially when we were going to that next point about families and in this pandemic i feel like as if a lot of families are going through different stresses and challenges of their own but yet there is something from the cdc that says people with family members usually cope better and i was about to ask you why this is so but now i think that with families, with children, when we actually have the that have this responsibility, do you feel like as if parents are more resilient because there is this responsibility that they know how to put a mask on and hide 
you know, those other problems so that children are not exposed to these things? You know, that in a way is almost a goal. There are yeah. certain things that behind the scenes, I guess you would say, that the children don't necessarily need to know. Right. And that we need to move forward. You know, my family, and I have three kids ranging from 18 to 22 now, mm. we were always very upfront with them about some of the big facts of life and, and talking about solutions and being able to always move through the problem into taking action. But there's mm -hmm. some things, though, that you do want to basically keep from the children mm. as parents. You know, that's basically the struggle in between the parents and themselves and, and your personal struggles that they don't necessarily need to be privy to. And also the stress of, you know, not having enough business, the ability, you know, the, the, the potential of maybe losing a job and all of these other factors. And also being able to, you know, we, we are all encroaching on each other's spaces like never before. So finding that balance has become really difficult. And what I find is sometimes we're saying things just out of reflex, re so reactionary um, in front of children that they otherwise would not have been hearing or listening to these kind of conversations. You know, and, and like what you were saying before, there are just some things that they don't need to know. If I take it all the way back to a very simple example, like, you know, there is a certain point in time where you just want your kids to know or enjoy the idea that there is a tooth fairy or enjoy the idea that Santa Claus is coming. You know, it's not something that you're supposed to break to them at the age of two or three. So with real life situations, though, I feel it's hitting kids quite early. So what is your opinion? What have you heard around you through friends, colleagues in your network? What is the impact of this pandemic on families with, with, with children? What do you think are the greatest challenges that, that these kids are going to be facing or families in general? That's a, that's a great question. And, and I was just talking about this with my wife the other day is, you know, we were already moving towards kind of a social isolation with the way children are being brought up. You know, mm. my kids were just on the cusp of the personal electronic devices and cell phones and things. That's right. Yes. And we, we basically had zero tolerance like electronics, mm. you know, in our house. We, we had a certain amount of time on the TV and they didn't get cell phones for quite a long time. Mm. And, but I think a lot of things have changed. So to answer your question, one of the biggest challenges I feel is socially, and I see, I see this in younger kids and I see this in my, my kids' friends too. Mm -hmm. is a challenge for them to be able to deal with things in a real-life social manner, you know, face-to-face, yeah. to, face, mm -hmm. to be able to not to get together and not sit on the couch and just look at your phone, to be able to get together and communicate ideas face-to-face -face and have interaction, which to right. me is very, very valuable. But then you put them into a situation where it's online learning, yeah. And it's, again, it's like they're isolated one more, you know, one more step away from being able to have the social interaction. Mm -hmm. And so I think it compounds to a place where 
it, you know, they're losing the ability to learn how to socially interact. Yeah. And I think that's one of the, one, that's one of the biggest problems. And I think it's very difficult for the parents then to become part of that social interaction. The kids need their group. And mm -hmm. so not only are the kids isolated because of this COVID, because of the online, and they were already beginning to isolate because of electronic devices and cell phones, you know, it, it's kind of up to the parent to pull them out of that and, and to Absolutely. interact. And it's a huge challenge for the parent because, as you said, right now there's so many roles that the parents have and there's so much pressure on us as a parent during yeah. this time to keep the business running if there is a, still a business to do this yeah. to make sure they're in school to be all these different things and yeah. not have that break i work with a lot of guys in recovery that have younger kids and things like that and I, that's a lot of the feedback i get there, there's a lot of pressure in that yeah i like what you said about balance and and i do want to get back to that um in a bit as well as to what it is that we can do and when we can do it i i sort of remember this movie now as we were speaking about this example uh, life is beautiful you know roberto benigni mm -hmm. and and of course you know the movie but dad dad and son are obviously in this in this in this camp and he does not really divulge the true nature of the situation that they're in. You know, he, he basically tells his son that this entire concentration camp that they're in is a game and that every time he would cry, he's going to lose points. Every time he's able to get away from the guards, he would gain points. And Throughout this whole situation, the child seems to think that he's in a game until obviously the final day. It's, 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 it's a disastrous ending, obviously, where he actually sees his father being taken away by, by, by the soldiers. And, and his father still winks at him mm -hmm. because, because it was one of the rules where you don't actually speak out or, or, or don't bring attention to your soldiers or anything like that. And, uh, and he continues to play the game and he only realizes what happens, you know, when, when the Allied forces came in the following day. Now, it's, it's, it's a heartbreaking story, but to a certain extent, how much are we as parents, how responsible are we as parents? And at what age or up to what age are we supposed to protect our children, so to speak, from the challenges that are that we're facing in our lives right now so that they can continue to be children and, and, and focus on what their life is supposed to be about, which is school and education and their friends. So so I, I don't know whether you got my question there, but how much are we supposed no, to let I, them I, in I on the stresses? I completely got yeah. that question. Yeah. And you know, that question is very real to me right now, and I'll explain why. Mm -hmm. But I think a lot has to do with your intuition and your instinct of how prepared the child really is. Right. And how, what I base that on is my daughter is 18 years old. She's always been extremely independent at 16. Mm -hmm. She went to New York for a month and did a, uh, a pre college program by yourself, you know, in this uh, Pratt university. And so she's mm -hmm. always been very independent. So she went away to Emerson College, and then she came back with the COVID. Mm. And uh, she was home for a while. And she just 
wanted to go back to Boston. Right. And she was asking, and she had all her ducks in a row. Literally, mm. she had, and this this will answer your question in a certain way. Mm. She had everything prepared. She knew where she wanted to live. She had her roommates. She had her job lined up. She had the whole situation. And mm. so my wife and I, though, out of our own fear, we're like, last thing we really want is our daughter to go back to Boston. This is two months ago in the middle of this pandemic. Right. But, you know, we and we we had our prayer. We we took time in prayer and meditation, and then we came back to each other. And I told my wife, I go, what kind of parents would we be? And what kind of example would we set if we held her back because of our fears? Because she certainly mm. was prepared, and we could tell she was prepared to do this. And it was yeah. very different than when my kids went away to school. She wanted to go away for her life and start her life. Right. And, and, and at 18, we're kind of like, what? But, but it was something we had to do. But in, in, intuition-wise, we knew she was prepared. We knew she was ready for that. And, you know, my wife and I have always believed in letting our kids go with, with somewhat of a safety net. And they might not even be aware of the safety net. Right. But we, we want them to go out there and not necessarily be in our bubble mm. and experience the things that only you can learn from experience. And it's mm. really one of the toughest things to watch, you know, and that, that process can start, I mean, all the way through grade school, it can start so early allowing them to do certain things when you have the intuition that they're prepared to do it. Absolutely. You know, and let them explore. And it's, it's it's the great conundrum of being a parent is raising independent children that are ready to fly, mm. you know, and, and then the other side of that conundrum is, oh my gosh, I don't want them. I'm scared for them, but they're prepared and they're going to have to experience it. And I, I can tell you right now, it's, it's still tough. I miss my little girl so much, but she's doing, she's doing well. And every time I talk to her, she's grown so much. Yeah. And that hurts too, because I'm like, okay, that baby girl <laughs> that we used to go on dates is, she, she's a woman, you know? And, but it's this intuition that we feel. And it's that ability to like, listen to your creator to God when it's time to let them go, you know? And no, I, it's a tough thing. I definitely, firstly, you know, want to acknowledge uh, your daughter for her certitude because you know she she had faith she had confidence she had certainty and all of those factors together gives you guys the confidence to allow the child you know to make these decisions exactly. however i love how you brought it all the way back to when they were in school and giving them this space giving them the space to take those risks and not always you know having to rescue or overparent a particular situation and, and if they've fallen and they've picked themselves up and if they've realized and reflected on what they can do to, to sort of make it better, it gives them the tools that they need, which especially now during a crisis, she's doing very well for herself, you know. So, so you know, I acknowledge you as parents as well to, to have that kind of, I guess, patience and, and intuition, really, to be able to understand these things and to be able to trust your gut and that faith, isn't it? which is really important. It's a huge amount of faith that, 
You know, it's like we're we're all God's children, and so you know he he's taking care of her just the same way that he would take care of us. Yeah. And you know, it's it's well, parenting is has been such a journey, you know, with my two boys mm. and with that girl. But I have mm. a million stories. <laughs> yeah, and I'm sure you'll draw out some more examples when I speak about helping. And I know before we can help our children, we need to also help ourselves. And how do we help ourselves to be in this space that you're in? Because I sense that it may have not always been like this, but you're at a space where you're calm, you're collected, and you're able to go and meditate and come together and make a decision and, and, not, and not react to it. What do parents need to do to be able to help themselves get to this particular space so that they can then be of better service uh, to, to their children? You know, I, I know for me, as a man, as a man in their, his 50s, what I really need to do. And I think it's very similar for women also. But, you know, we, we earlier, Richard, we were talking about, you know, wise men and mentors and things. Mm-hmm. I have a mentor and he's, mm-hmm. he's, he's 84 years old. Mm-hmm. And I formally have asked him to be my mentor. I spend time with him and he gets to speak into me. And I have right. a whole nother group of like-minded men that I, that I, connect with through my recovery program. And honestly, without that support, I would not have, I would not, I might not have a family (laughs) because it keeps, it keeps me being transparent with somebody that you hundred percent trust. That's what it comes down to being transparent, having somebody that really knows you, having somebody that knows your secrets that you can Mm -hmm. tell that can call you out on it. You allow that. It's, it's, it's a permission that they have to speak into you is one of the biggest assets I have right now. And, you know, my mentor, John, I, I meet with him every Saturday for two hours. He has me wow. do writing sometimes. You know, we talk about what the week was like, but yeah. I give him permission to speak into me and, and see it the way he needs. He, he's, with his age and everything, he's an amazing simplifier of things for me. So yeah, I can come yeah. back with a simplified, more grounded view for my family and especially for my wife. Right. Because, you know, men on their own devices, I personally feel that men my age, mm. a lot of them act like 12 year olds. <laughs> <laughs> and as my as John says to me, I got to put on my big boy pants quite often. Yeah. You know, it's it's not about me anymore. And that's what I learned when I had my first child. Yeah. You know, you, I I've made a huge commitment to be there the whole way. And uh it, it's not about me anymore. And I I love I don't love that saying but it's very near and dear to me. It kind of bugs me sometimes because I want it to be about me. That's right. You know, but that for, for these times and everything, I think asking for help, being transparent with a good friend, mm. that that is like one of the most healing things you can do. And find try to find somebody a little bit older than you that's made some of the mistakes so you don't have to stop, step in the same booby traps. Yeah. You know, and that's really what's, 
one of my key things is just being able to reach out and, and, and be able to talk to John, be able to talk to other men transparently, but mainly John and, and have somebody know really about me. Cause you know, when I, when I start sneaky behaviors, when I start thinking about myself too much, mm. it completely draws me out of any sort of acceptance because it's all about me. That's right. Yeah. You know, and it's, it's a tough thing to swallow, but really it's not as bad as it sounds because yeah. there's gifts and hope on the other side of yeah. that. And I don't know whether you uh, whether you agree with this or not, but there are grown men or women have, have, have grown up to develop a particular demeanor or a disposition or a personality. And for somebody listening to this right now, they may not be in a situation where they can think of the one person that they can, you know, automatically start doing this to and time is of the essence. But I've heard that, um, you know, waking up earlier in the morning, making sure that you have that time of introspection for yourself and journaling provides some kind of help in that balance, in being able to reflect what you truly need. Um, so if you have this mentor, if you don't have a John in your life, do you feel like as if they need to at least start something rather than not do anything at all? Oh, my gosh. I mean, that that time in the morning, mm. I, I, I either hike or if, I, if, or if I'm at our place near the beach, mm. I either hike in the mornings and then I, I do have my meditation book that I read and I read a daily reading. Mm-hmm. Or I get out in the water, ride my bike, whatever it takes. Mm. But yes, I'm wholeheartedly with you. If, if you're not already in a community, being able just to set up yourself so you have that personal time in the morning and make it sacred, make it special. Yeah. I mean, this is my time. This is my meditation. This is my time with God, if you want to call it that, you know, and this yeah. is, and then start your day after that. You know, and I, I completely 100% agree because those days that I'm able to do my reading, that I'm able to take my hike, that I'm able to like have that time between me and God and my dog, <laughs> <laughs> it, it starts out way better. Yeah. And, we, and, and it's just sorry, it's very Karen. important. Yeah. No, and, go ahead. And, and we model, right? We model for our children. And our children know that. The times that we're going through at the moment, yeah, they're tough times. But when we develop this kind of ritual or this kind of routine, and our children see us coping with this pandemic in this particular way, that brings us a sense of calmness, that brings us a sense of, um, I don't know what you call it, but just being, just being, being reflective so that we don't react. We, we're responding to situations. And seeing how mm-hmm. important it is that, that we take care of ourselves. I feel these are really valuable lessons for our children to, to see, to discover, to learn from. Because Lord knows what's going to happen 15, 20 years from now. And they need to sort of have these impressions in their mind about what their parents did. You know, and, and, and I feel that that may help them. And, and I completely... I so agree. And I think sometimes as a male, as a dad, as the husband, we forget about our influence in the family. And I don't want to be all gender based or whatever, you know, but it is the truth. We Mm -hmm. are the dads Mm -hmm. and we affect our family on so many different levels. Yes. 
And we really do, on a lot of cases, kind of guide the whole vibe, for lack of a better word, of our family. Mm. You know, for example, when when I'm when I'm caught up in myself, or I, I I'm like concerned about having my personal needs met. Mm. You know, we well, I really wanted to do this. I didn't want to do what everybody else is doing and everything. It just it just throws quite a wrench into the whole family. When I'm able to be of acceptance, mm. this is the way it is. This is what you know. It changes the whole way things go. Right. And 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 we're and really as men in the family, it, it we're very very influential that way, you know. Yeah. And and sometimes, but the conundrum of that whole thing is, by leading the family, you have to not lead the family. Absolutely. You have to be in a point of an acceptance. And yeah. uh, you know, I, I have a little story about, you know, when my son was growing up. Mm. And he was about seven years old. I grew up a surfer and a skater, and I wanted my son to be a surfer and a skater. I was against organized sports, mm. and all he wanted to do was play American football. And I'm like, no, no organized sports, no team sports, you know. Mm -hmm. My son's a free thinker, this and all this. And this is, you know, this is like over, you know, a, a while back when my son was tiny. And uh, all he wanted to do is play football. He had a play football helmet and everything. And I finally, God spoke to me and said, you know, Eric? You need a parent for him and not for you. Yeah. You know, and I, I, I finally, you know, it was very uncomfortable. I finally gave in to that. And then I learned everything in the world about football. Yeah. And now my son is playing at Harvard, in Harvard State uh, Stadium, playing football for Harvard University. Oh, my goodness. And he's a center. Mm. And to think through my own selfishness, I could have that might not have happened. Yeah. So, you know, as, as, as a father and the leader of the family, it's very important no. to, to accept things and move on and work with it and, and then embrace it. Yeah, no, I, I, two very powerful messages from, from what you just shared, Eric. I think one is as a dad of the family, allowing ourselves to be vulnerable when a lot of the times we think that we are not supposed to be. We're supposed to be the tough guy. We're supposed to show our children, especially if we've got sons, to toughen up. You know, that whole gender thing you were speaking about as well. But, you know, vulnerability, acceptance is, isn't a weakness. Because we need to teach our children that everything that happens in life is not in our control. It is what we do with things that are in our control um, that virtues are required for. We can't control what's happening to our country, can't necessarily control what's happening, you know, with other people. But when the situation faces us, when the cards are dealt, what do we do then? And I think that's that's what we need to sort of limit our actions towards, you know, and and accept that accept the things that we can't change and just work on the things that that we can. That that was the first one that I got from you, and and the second one was how important it is to embrace our children and what they want to do, you know, because it, through, through your story, and, and thank you for being so honest and open about it, is that that one incident in your life, if you had stuck to your guns and not allowed that to flourish in your child, that nurturing hadn't happened in, in, into his area of passion, then he wouldn't be where he is today. So thank you for sharing that. 
Yeah, I, I, I'd like to. I'd like to tell my friends, you know, that have the younger children. It's like if they prove their passion to it and their commitment, mm. then the parents should be able to meet them fifty fifty. Yeah, you know. And honestly, I'm I'm still not a big fan of football. <laughs> but it's all right. <laughs> Amer- American football, but. I am now. I learned everything about it, and I've gotten the honor to to see my son play, and mm. you know, and to think because of my own devices, I could have missed that. That's yeah. pretty crazy. Yeah. But if they have the passion, you know, you meet them halfway, and uh, you know, we we were talking earlier before we went on on air with this is we're talking about. I, I believe each child. Is just an untapped, untapped potential. Absolutely, you know, and 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 they're influenced in so many different ways. And and when they when they light on something that they love, mm-hmm. you know, it, it's it's up to the parent to create an atmosphere that they can grow as far as they want and take it as far as they want. Right. You know, and and if they're willing to do the work then the parent should be willing to do the work. It's a 50-50 thing. Right. So, Eric, in light of everything that we've spoken about right now, and I know you're all about the hope, but I wanted to ask again, just reflecting on our conversation and beyond, if we are stuck in a particular situation, and I want to talk about us as a parent and also how we guide our children, How do we mobilize hope? Where do we find it? How do we model it? And how do we create an environment to cultivate it in our children? And I know we've spoken about all of this already, but what are the main takeaways for you on how we can find hope and how we mobilize it for them? You know, for me, you know, hope doesn't come out of nowhere. Right. Hope is produced through a spiritual path for me Mm. and my spiritual path and my God asked me in return just for a few, you know, for all the gifts I get, he asked a few simple things of me. And one of it is to help other people. Right. And that, that to me is a true definition of hope Mm. is when you're able to reach out and if you've been there before to reach that hand out and help somebody else. Now, how do you mobilize that for your family and for your kids? Uh, It's, it's, it's impossible. I think I don't want to say impossible, but it is very difficult just to pass that on. Right. But it's not difficult to model those behaviors. So they're able to, see you practice that in a daily way Mm. and see what you as an individual, how you can affect other people Mm. by just putting your hand out and thinking of others by thinking in an open way and not a closed and not a closed way, you know, and being able to put your hand out and help others. And, and I think by example, that's the best way to mobilize that. So your children see it in a regular basis. And I see this all the time and I see it with my boys too, is that, and and with the guys I sponsor um, in recovery, 
I see them change and I see their whole family change and the kids change because they're modeling a whole different behavior. Yes. You know, and they have a practice putting into like what we're talking, getting up in the morning, that that's whatever. It it doesn't have to be a spiritual practice or whatever it is, putting that into practice. But I think helping others is like at the core for, for mobilizing hope. Absolutely. For like really bringing it to a real situation. No, I, I thank you. Thank you for sharing that. It's uh, really beautiful. And I acknowledge you for your service and for having a charitable heart as well, because I feel like as if we need to be thankful, you know, when, when, when I sit with my son at night and we pray, um, because he kept complaining. Well, he wasn't really complaining, but as a child would always, you know, when will this virus go away? You know, why is this pandemic and stuff like that going on? So I started developing a routine with him that every night when we pray, we say two things that you're thankful for and two things that I'm thankful for. Oh, yeah. And uh, and he has it as a routine now. So the moment we finish our bedtime story, he sits down on his bed and he says, Daddy, you say two things and I say two things. And every Uh. day he thinks about the things that he's thankful for. And I feel like sometimes we have to be thankful and, and, and understand that there are there are people that are not as fortunate as us and allowing ourselves to be in service of them is we actually need to be thankful for the opportunity to actually have that kind of service because it gives us, um, you know, perspective on life. It's not, it's not that we are helping them to, to a greater extent. We're actually helping ourselves to be in service as well. So I, that resonated with me, what you said about how that actually gives you the feeling of hope. You know, that, that's, you know, I'm, I'm remiss to not mention gratitude. And I'm so glad you brought that up because, you know, my, my mentor says a grateful thought is a perfect prayer. Mm-hmm. And I, I just find that so beautiful. And, you know, gratitude towards just even the smallest things and teaching your children to have gratitude as opposed to the entitlement that we so much see is a beautiful thing. Absolutely. Eric, as we end, I I wonder, do you have that card handy? Is that? Yeah, I do. Yeah. So, you know, that second page, uh, the, Uh the, the practice of hope. Would you mind reading that for me? I would love to Richard. Thank you. (laughs) Let's see the practice of hope. I maintain a positive attitude. I embrace my life fully. I have faith in the value of life. I have the confidence to succeed. I seek to discern life's lessons. I persevere through all conditions. I am thankful for the gift of hope. It is the light of my life. Now, in this conversation, if there was a little square box on the left-hand side of each of those sentences, I'd be ticking them for you, Eric, because, (laughs) I mean, literally, you know, everything that you've shared um, from your children's stories, the certitude, the commitment, the compassion, the service, the decisiveness at uh, troubled times, uh, you know, your forbearance, the way you've tolerated hardship with such good grace. And, and not just allowing life to swing you left and right and allowing yourself to anchor yourself for your, for your wife, for your family, um, and f- for this fortitude. I think it's, it's, it's a lesson that 
this this conversation is a lesson for all parents including myself that we need to endure no matter what you know with strength with patience for the sake of our children because they're going to grow up looking at all of us they're going to see us the way we model ourselves and that is going to be the seeds that we're giving them for their future so if we do want them to have a future in which they can know what balance in life is about through all those trials and tribulations then that investment starts now with us so any uh, last thoughts from you eric oh man thank you i mean this this has actually been <laughs> this has been a blessing for me mm. this this spending time with you thank you it it's been very validating mm. your connection is amazing and i appreciate that and you know if there's anything like a last thought for me mm. about hope you know in my films it's based on three pillars mm -hmm. the truth it's the trauma it's the thing that happened it's that point where you were traumatized where you had the grief came about then there's the healing and that's when you connect with somebody else that's similar that has the same problem and you have an identification and you realize you're not alone oh me too mm. and it validates yourself but you also aspire to them because you can see that they have found some sort of way out mm. and that healing then proceeds to the point of hope and for me, I do a little bit of a turn on hope, and, and this is what I just wanted to end on. Mm. Hope, hope, the complete manifestation of hope for me is when you get to the other end of that healing and you're healed enough to go back to the beginning of that line to the people that are still in the truth mm. and put out your hand to help them. Yeah. Because you've already been through there. Absolutely. You've been through the healing. You've you've tread that path. Mm. So you become their pathfinder. And that's, to me, and my personal definition, that's like the ultimate bit of hope. Right. That you go back and you stick out your hand to somebody else. And I just, I just appreciate uh, the time that we had tonight and the affirmation I feel from our conversation so thank you so much oh, thank you eric the, the the honor and the pleasure was all mine you know you you have so much wisdom you're so much more experienced than where i am in my life and to just listen to your stories has given me hope uh for the future as well so i i, I thank you and um eric where can our listeners learn more about you and, and your films to learn more about me personally, they can go to EC, that's Eric Christensen, ecproductions.com. Mm -hmm. And then also importantly, to find out about my latest film that uh, will actually come out a year from today, Unmasking Hope, about people that have survived severe trauma and then found hope on the other side, 9-11 survivors. Mm -hmm mass shooting survivors, sexual trauma survivors, you can go to unmaskinghopethemovie.com and it has all the information, all the different participants. We have 11 different survivors. We have some amazing experts and then you can also find out how you can be get involved with with the film itself and find out where it'll be airing and playing, etc. Excellent. I'll put all of this information in, in the in the show notes, the episode description as well. Thank you, Eric. And um, to all our listeners as well, thank you for tuning in. 
you know where to find us. We're on Facebook and Instagram at Family of Virtues and on our website, www.familyofvirtues.com. Thank you for listening. And um, until next time, may God bless us all. Thank you, Eric. Thank you, Richard. Thank you.